beautiful bridges that trace out the city's skyline. Um, this hilly terrain, something they like to brag about there, it plays host to the most public staircases uh, inside the United States, and the epicenter of the city is something called the Golden Triangle. And there are 90 distinct neighborhoods within this city, and each of them have these subtle nuances that make them beautiful in their own way. And if you've ever been there, you know that the vision of the city as you come through a tunnel on the interstate just kind of blows up in front of you, and it is one of the most beautiful skylines uh, that I personally have ever seen, and it takes, the first time I see it, I remember it taking my breath away. It's a pretty sublime view from up on top. They still have some old uh, inclines that run off their streetcars, and uh, they run up. There's a place there called Mount Washington. It's just got this striking view of the city and feels like you could just see to the ends of the earth. And uh, nearby, you can take in architect and designer Frank Lloyd Wright's masterpiece called Falling Waters. And if you have enough time, you can visit the beautiful campus of the prestigious Carnegie Mellon University. In addition to the finer culture, this is also a place where the locals consider it a delicacy to put french fries on their sandwiches. There's never a short of pierogies and cabbage rolls. Black and gold are the two colors that define the city's professional sports franchises, and people there wear them proudly as their coat of arms. Now some of you right now are completely disgusted. Because this is Cincinnati. And I have just described to you the city of Pittsburgh, which if you've ever been to, and you don't have sports affiliation, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, right? However, if you're a Bengals fan, like I'm assuming some of you are here, or a Browns fan, which I know we have some, or a Ravens fan, or, I mean, let's be honest, everyone hates the Steelers except Steelers fans, right? They're not really the kind of team you root for when your team has been eliminated from, con- from contention. Uh, But for those of you who are fans of the other uh, teams in the AFC North, uh, this is not the way you think of or talk about the city of Pittsburgh. And as a matter of fact, you may have your own colorful way of describing that city as a whole. (laughs) Um, And here's the thing. Bengals fans, Browns fans, at all, live with this animosity towards Pittsburgh that's rolled up in the fact of this football rivalry, right? And I mean... I hate to break the news to you, but this thing really isn't much of a rivalry, and I know we're outside of football season, but it's coming. This thing is not much of a rivalry, and uh, here's the stats on that. Since the year 2000, there have been 40 games played between the Steelers and Bengals. The Steelers have won 31 of those games. That includes the regular season and the playoffs, and the Bengals have won nine. So this is a rivalry and I'm not exactly sure why. But the real reason for the disgust Bengals fans have towards the city of Pittsburgh is that it seems like they have it all, right? But we also consider them to be quite the cheaters when it comes to the game of football. And I know Browns fans live with, this same, uh, with, the, same, with the same notion, whether it's busted knees or dirty hits or coaches interfering with players on the field or catches that simply just didn't happen. Fans of anybody but the Steelers in this division feel like some cruel trick is being played on them because that team continues to win, and it feels like, as a sports fan, this huge injustice. So some questions. 
Dylan, I'm going to direct this at you. If, if I asked you to switch your fan affiliation from Cleveland to the Pittsburgh Steelers, your answer would be? Not even before last year. Not even before last year, yeah. So Dylan is a, is a Browns fan, and that, I think that sounds harder than being a Bengals fan, so kudos to you. The, the truth here is, um, not sports affiliations aside, uh, we hold these things to be really important to us, and we might say things about a city or we feel a certain way about a city based on these tiny things that matter to us in the moment, but like in the grand scheme of things, they, they bring joy to our life when they're winning and a little bit of sadness when they're not. Um, but what I want to ask is, if, if we asked you to do this, whether you're a Bengals fan or a Boston fan or a Yankees fan or whatever it might be, if we asked you to switch your affiliation, would you do that? Or is that the kind of thought that gives you anxiety? Does it twist your stomach up in knots? And um, How much do you hate the opposing side? So today, uh, I want to talk about the story of Jonah. And uh, before we get too far into that, what I would like to do is give you a little backstory on where Jonah was supposed to go. And uh, a lot of us know that that town was called Nineveh. So here's a little bit of backstory on Nineveh. Nineveh is the second capital, or was the second capital, of the ancient Assyrian Empire that ruled a portion of the Middle East, located amongst parts of modern-day Iraq, western Iran and then spreading into the current lands of Syria and Turkey. Nineveh, at the time, was known by the Hebrews as being a place only worthy of the Lord's destruction because, first of all, they didn't follow the Lord, and the the brutal way that they treated people, particularly when they were in a, a battle situation. Of the most descriptive things written about the brutality administered by the Assyrians comes from one of their kings named Asher Nasserpal II, who was king during a period during the 8th century BC. And this guy, I mean, yikes. Uh, what I'm about to read here <laughs> might be PG-13 in a movie, uh, but he's just brutal beyond ro- all recognition. So listen to this. Attributed to him that was taken for, uh, from some historical artifacts about a place that he happened to have sacked. Here it goes. Their young men uh, and old I took prisoners. Of some I cut off their feet and hands. Of others I cut off their ears, noses, and lips. Of the young men's ears I made a heap, a pile of ears. Of the old men's heads I made a minaret, a tower of heads. I exposed their heads as a trophy in front of their city. The male children and the female children I burned in flames. The city I destroyed and consumed with fire. Now look, <laughs> I, I don't know how much resentment you have towards your rival sports teams. <laughs> My guess is in those cities, uh, stuff like this is not happening. <laughs> um, but what do you hate the most? Do you hate it this much? Do you want to show it, uh, how much you hate it this much? And I'm just saying, like, where this guy lived, where he was doing these things, this is the 
place that the Lord asked Jonah to travel to, but not only to visit, but to carry out his will and to try to convert the people in the city. And that's a tough ask. Um, and Jonah, he understands that. And he, he's, his angst towards this uh, is warranted. And after hearing about this level of brutality, I mean, you can only understand why Jonah didn't want to go. Jonah, who already despises Nineveh and the Assyrians, is terrified of going to a city with the reputation of Nineveh. And he does everything in his power to try to wiggle out of doing this thing. And I think it's interesting the depths to which we will dive when we don't want to do something. So if you will, open up. Uh, there's Bibles there in front of you. If you want to use an app, that's fine with us. Uh, to page 654. And we're going to be in the book of Jonah here. This is chapter 1, starting in verse 1. It says this. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Like that's possible. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let's cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And they were like, well, this makes sense. This terrified them. And they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to the land, but they could not. For the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. So Jonah really, really, really doesn't want any part of this. Let me finish this story for you. The Lord saves Jonah by sending a great fish, big fish, and here's the deal. Let's not get caught up with the fish. 
If we do, we really run the risk of missing a beautiful story about what's really happening here. So the Lord sends a fish. And uh, this is piecing together chapters 1, 2, and 3, just so you can follow along. He sends a fish. It swallows up Jonah. He stays there for three days, and it takes him to the riverbanks of Nineveh, and it spits him up on the shore, where Jonah goes and tells them, uh, the people who live in the city, that the Lord is going to destroy it in the time of 40 days. After hearing this, the king of Nineveh responds in a way that Jonah isn't quite expecting when he repents and gets all of his people to do the same. Um, Again, Jonah, hearing this, uh, I'm sorry, the Lord hears this, and when he understands it, he decides not to carry out the destruction that he had threatened upon Nineveh. Uh, Jonah, who doesn't want to go and carry this out in the first place, is now caught in the position of thinking he looks like a total fool, and he's not happy about it. When a prophet prophesies justice, and the Lord grants mercy instead of carrying out full and total destruction of a city, you would think that would be a good thing, uh, but not according to Jonah, because all he can think about is his role in this, and, um, and it doesn't happen the way that he tells them it's going to happen. Uh, Jonah can't handle this. So what he does is he goes off into the desert, and he gets angry because the one thing he said was going to happen didn't happen. Um, he's angry, of course, and he starts making these statements like that he would rather be dead than live with the thought that he was a total failure or that what he said was going to happen was not, in fact, going to happen. First of all, that's a really familiar feeling for some of us. And I just want to make a a point in saying God always thinks higher of you than you think of you. Um, And it's good to know that we serve a God who loves us more now than he ever will or ever has. So uh, it's important to know that. And then secondly, there's a question of understanding here. And, and what we can't do in these types of situations is lean on our own understanding, which is not easy, uh, but that's what Jonah tries to do. We might not understand exactly what the Lord might be doing in the world or through our lives, Um, And sometimes that causes a feeling of helplessness for us. I mean, have you ever reluctantly followed through on something only to have it blow up in your face? It's not a great feeling. Uh, But in spite of those feelings, our charge from the Lord is to always do what's good. In the following book, Micah, um, the Lord says through uh, that prophet these words found in chapter 6, verse 8, which is, The Lord has already told you what is good, and this is what he requires, to do what is right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And focusing on that walk humbly part, I think, is what is important in this this verse. And I believe our first step towards humility comes with an understanding that we are all truly on a level playing field, and that comes with killing some idols. We all have them. I don't know what yours are, um, but a workable definition is anything in your life that seems to have a higher importance than your relationship with the Lord. Kill that thing. Uh, Make a minaret of heads out of it. I don't know. Maybe not go that far. (laughs) Um, But uh, place, for some people, can, can be an idol. 
And I think that might be the case with Jonah. And when I say place, I mean his country, his, where, he, where he believes he belongs. And the thought of going to Nineveh terrifies him. And that place has become somewhat of an idol for him. And when he's told to go there, uh, he doesn't want to go. And there's multiple reasons for this. Of course, it's dangerous. There's bad blood between the Assyrians and the Hebrews. And, and really, just to call it out, Jonah's likely letting some of his stereotypes and, and fear play into his decision to flee from what God is calling him to. But what happens because of Jonah's obedience, forced as it may be, is that God doesn't carry out the destruction of an entire nation of people. And that's a good thing. (laughs) They hear Jonah's message, they repent, and God spares them. And Jonah, who who never really gets to the process of letting go of some of his preconceived notions about a group of people. Um, he lives in a time when where you were from really matters. And we're not too far from removed from that today, if we even are. Um, but that lesson can extend beyond place. And I, and, and, um, and I think it's important, like I said before, that we try to understand that we're all on a level playing field. So... This was taught to me by a teenager in a different way when I was a youth minister at the church we were at previously to this. We ran an open gym program in North College Hill, and it happened on Sunday nights, and kids would come in from the neighborhood, and it was usually chaotic, but it was a lot of fun playing basketball in the gym at the church. And uh, there was a a new young man that came in one day, and his, his name was Amir Carter, and uh, Amir, you know, he came up to me and, and, and uh, we introduced ourselves and I said, hey, Amir, man, where are you from? And he, and he looks at me and he was like, and he made me f- feel strange because that's a pretty typical question that you ask somebody when you meet them. And he just kind of looked at me and he said, well, what do you mean? And I was like, I was, I was confused because it's like, well, you know, like, like, uh, like, where are you from? Like, where do you come from? Like, where do you live? And he looks at me up and down, and he goes, man, I'm from the earth, just like everybody else. And I was like, wow, you're right, man. <laughs> Doesn't matter. It turned out he was from North College Hill, but... <laughs> but he floored me when he said that. From the earth, just like everybody else. I think what's good for us is to start thinking that everybody is on our team. Uh, Jesus commands us to love our neighbors, but what does that mean? Israel is this nation that's surrounded by people groups that wanted to take their land and build empires, and, and Jesus says to love those we consider our enemies. And I know that's hard sometimes, but if we consider that the kingdom wins when we do, I think we're doing well to follow the Lord's plan for our lives. You know, let's not leave the one to chase the 99. Um, Secondly, we can't understand what we don't know. The Lord has given us emotions to deal with a variety of things that happen in our lives. And fear, of course, is one of those emotions. But the thing about fear is that sometimes it can be based on assumptions we make about things we don't understand well. And the only way that we can get through that is by allowing ourselves to experience things that take us outside of our comfort zones. 
And that first happened for me when I was in high school. I didn't grow up a believer. I didn't become a believer until I was 20 years old. But my high school, there were uh, a few a few teachers who really kind of took me under their wing as as uh, like a mentor mentee type of relationship. And our in our high school, my junior year, uh, was going to do a service learning trip to inner city Chicago. And growing up in a small town uh, without the full force of the internet behind us, there were lots of things that I wasn't exposed to as a kid. I mean, a town of 1,500, 1500 people um, just didn't really get exposed to a lot of things. And um, that all changed when, when I went on this trip. And the biggest city I had been to at that point was Columbus. And we'd never really been to the city. We'd only ever just kind of driven through it. So uh, here I was in, in the middle of a south side community called North Lawndale, which at the time in Chicago was one of the, had some of the highest crime rates in the nation. And, um, and I just remember being in that environment uh, when we were serving we were serving kids at a day camp or we were helping to rebuild some, some houses or we were painting or whatever it was that we were doing. I remember the feeling that, okay, there are people who are different from I am. Uh, there are people who live different ways. And experiencing that for the first time, I think when you're 17 years old, you don't process that immediately but it is definitely something that you draw back to when you find yourself in those similar situations when you're, when you're an adult. And I learned in that trip that it was okay for people to think differently and to look differently and to act differently than I did. And I didn't have to be scared about anything uh, that was going on. And uh, the benefit of that experience is how it plays out even to this day in my life. Um, my family, we've lived in, we lived in Price Hill for f- almost 15 years at this point. And, um, there, at one point, were strong similarities between the two communities. And, and we lived there intentionally because, uh, you know, we believe that that's a place where uh, God wants us to be and he wants his message to be spread. So um, that's the thing. Uh, expose, expose ourselves to new things and, and then to do what Jonah does in chapter 2, which we skipped. But he prays. And he prays this prayer and he's, he's grateful and he's following the Lord's leading, not quite understanding what's going to happen. He thinks, he's, he thinks he knows what's going to happen. But in the midst of all that, when he's struggling, he lays out this prayer in chapter 2. And I think that that's a really important step for us to take um, when we're feeling... Uh, like we don't understand, or when we're feeling overwhelmed by a circumstance, or God is calling us to do something that maybe we're not quite sure we want to do. For Jonah, first of all, to say, throw me off the boat <laughs> is, is a huge step. But then he prays, um, and I think that's important. And, and the way I would like for us to, to close this out is just to read through this prayer together and have that be our prayer going in to the next couple of weeks. So this is Jonah chapter two, and it says this. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from inside the fish. He said, I cried out to the Lord in my great trouble, and he answered me. I called to you from the land of the dead, and Lord, you heard me. You threw me into the ocean depths, and I sank down to the heart of the sea. 
the mighty waters engulfed me. I was buried beneath your wild and stormy waves. Then I said, O Lord, you have driven me from your presence, yet I will look once more toward your holy temple. I sank beneath the waves, and the waters closed over me. Seaweed wrapped itself around my head. I sank down to the very roots of the mountains. I was imprisoned in the earth, whose gates locked shut forever. But you, O Lord my God, snatched me from the jaws of death. As my life was slipping away, I remembered the Lord, and my earnest prayer went out to you and your holy temple. Those who worship false gods turn their backs on all God's mercies. But I will offer sacrifices to you with songs of praise, and I will fulfill all my vows, for my salvation comes from the Lord alone. God, uh, we trust you and we follow you. And when things get tough and when we have a hard time understanding exactly what it is that you want us to do or a new experience that you want us to, to partake in, we pray that you are here with us. Lord, we love you and we give everything we have to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.